This is Leslie Riddick. You're listening to Indie Live Radio on International Women's Day. We choose to challenge because we dare to live full, real lives. This is Marlon Halliday and I'm here on the show with Valerie Gold. And this is the fourth and final of our programmes celebrating International Women's Day. Now, when Valerie had the idea of making these programmes and then when we talked it over, we were thinking of one programme. Quite quickly that became two programmes and shortly after that it doubled to four. Partly because so many of the women we contacted accepted the invitation to contribute and we wanted to include all of them. And because we wanted music and poetry included in these celebrations of International Women's Day. So the guests I interviewed who are in this final programme are Kirsty Hughes, Michelle Thompson, Lynn Copeland, Heather Anderson and Julie Bell. Kirsty Hughes is a writer and commentator on Scottish, European and UK politics. In 2017 she founded and is now the director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. She's worked at a number of leading European think tanks, including being based over in Europe for a while herself, and she contributes to a wide range of national and international media outlets. Recently, I know she's been thinking a lot about Scotland and Brexit, but today we were talking about International Women's Day, the theme of Choose to Challenge, and where Kirsty herself has chosen to challenge and where she thinks challenges remain for women now in the world in 2021. And one of the things that Kirsty talked about is how small things matter. Yes, there are big things that have to be faced and challenged, and in getting there, small things matter. That's the name of the track. My next guest in the programme is Michelle Thompson. These days, Michelle is a pretty well-known face in Scottish political circles, and she's standing in Holyrood elections in May. She graduated from the Scottish Conservatoire and she worked as a musician professionally. Then she changed direction and went into financial services and she has a great deal of experience as a businesswoman. So I was talking to Michelle, we talked about women in business and that's what this section of the programme is called. We talked about how some language and words which are used as compliments to men can be used as criticisms when directed towards women. I was really intrigued when Michelle started to talk about the need for systemic change, how the systems of how our society and our business work, many of them were set up by men. And even with unintentional bias, there is still bias there, even down to the way computer algorithms provide us with information. There is bias inbuilt to a lot of that and we need systemic change. The third of my guests this morning is Lynn Copeland. Lynn is the convener of the Geary Women for Change, a group of very active women all based up in the northeast of Scotland. And Lynn talked about some of the campaigns and initiatives that they've got underway over the last few years. They've included campaigning for the NHS, 
or rather campaigning to keep the NHS the way it is and to stop any creeping privatisation. They've set up meetings and conversation cafes focusing on climate change. And more recently out of that, they've become interested in economics. How does economics impact on women's lives? Are there better ways to arrange our economy that would improve women's lives? And that's led them to an interest in well-being economics. And of course, we touched on the kind of economics we'd like on an independent Scotland. And my last, but by no means least, guests are Julie Bell and Heather Anderson. They're both on the National Committee of Women for Independence, and they talk to us about ideas and issue and suggestions for policy going forward on matters like food, economics again, well-being economics. And all of this is to be found in Women for Independence Womanifesto, Manifesto, which will be published later this year. Marlene has told you about some of the great guests coming up on the show today, and I'm going to tell you about our other guest, Dr. Nigat Riaz. And Nigat is an academic. She has a doctorate in a PhD in the field of sociology of education. She's a researcher and lecturer at the Institute for Youth and Community Research at the University of the West of Scotland and she is a great spokesperson for ethnic minority young people and policy practice in education. She also sits on the National Social Justice and Fairness Commission. Good morning everyone. Val and I are here this morning and today we're sitting uh, talking to Kirsty Hughes. Uh, Kirsty's a writer, commentator on um, Scottish, European, UK politics um, and I know that back in 2017, Kirsty, you founded and uh, are now the director of the Scottish Centre on European Relations. So thank you very much for agreeing to come on be a guest with us and in particular to come be a guest when we're producing our International Women's Day special daytime show edition. It's, it's great to be here and thank you for inviting me and looking forward to the conversation. Good, good. So, you know, when it when it gets this time of year and, you know, International Women's Day is approaching, start to see a few news news items about it. Um, and the theme this year is choose to challenge. Does, does that spark memories for you or, you know, thoughts about where we are with the position of women worldwide? 2021? I think, well, you say memories, you know, I, I, I think it's always been a case of challenging and I, and I hope being optimistic, maybe it won't always have to be. Um, but, uh, you know, I was a teenager a very long time ago in, in the 1970s and I, and I was a feminist and I, I read my Germaine Greer and at some point... Yeah. I started calling myself Ms or MS, not Miss, and, and, and I remember the sort of the pushback I got, and of course people told you, you know, that you couldn't pronounce it, and it was silly, and who would come up with it, and, and of course now it's, it's, on the one hand it's widely accepted, and yeah, on the other hand we've still got Misses and Miss, and yet we've got lots of choices for women, and, and men still just use Mr. So, so I think these things can be, can be quite telling. Um, 
obviously we've made in many ways a lot of progress since then that that's over 40 years ago but but I think one of the things I've learned through my personal and working life is that progress doesn't always just go in a, a one-way direction I think when I was younger I rather thought it did until till you see things going backwards whether it's going backwards on democracy or quality of the media or going backwards on female gender stereotyping I, I remember being a bit horrified in the 80s as kids toys seemed to get more and more gender stereotyped and had separate bits of the shop and things that I don't think happened you know when I was a little kid in in the 60s so so we do need to challenge and choose to challenge and and that can be quite hard work sometimes or sometimes you think you just can't be bothered and <clears throat> we can't all do everything so yeah, I think yeah. you know we have to not be too hard on ourselves as as well and and do what we can when we can yeah I mean that's interesting to thinking back to you know the 70s and the 60s I mean I was a kid in the 50s and you know when if you were a girl and you asked for a cowboy outfit for your Christmas or your birthday, you know, well, actually, my mum and dad were always fine with that and they just got me it. But, you know, you'd have other uncle and aunts uh, raised eyebrows uh, and, and what you have. I think that's I think that's right. These things do run deep. So, it's, so it may seem a funny place to start talking about Miss and Mrs or, or Ms, but it's it's still there. And and. And maybe we shouldn't mind that there's now a lot of diversity as long as the diversity is accepted. But but as you say, some of it has deep roots and, and probably does still need challenging. And I look at two of my nieces who have little children at the moment, and they have very different attitudes to what they wanted by way of cards and presents and things. And one definitely wanted sort of pink for the girl and blue for the boy. And the other absolutely didn't want that and wanted white and yellow and green and unisex colors, which was much closer to, to my attitudes. But, it, but at the same time, we have to live with each other and, and we've come to different places, I think. Don't we? Yeah. 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 So, so have, you, have, have you experienced, you know, much of a uh, felt to be different or treated differently in your career up till, up till now? I wouldn't say I've I've experienced that much obvious and direct discrimination. Let's put it that way. Um, when I got my, my first job was in 1978, and I went to work in the TUC economics department, which which was an interesting time to do that for a couple of years because it yeah. was the last year of the Labour government yeah. and then the first year of the Thatcher government. And I think it was something like 12 men and me. And, and the only women were secretaries who, who did the typing for us, because in those days we wrote everything by hand and then they, they typed it up. Um, and then, then I went and did a PhD and I went into academia for a while before I went into think tanks by the 1990s. And there were women in universities and, and women lecturers and women in think tanks, but I, I was often moving in a, a very male-dominated environment I was working on. European politics in the 90s and think tanks and I got to, it was very interesting I got to meet really senior people in the British or the German or the French or Dutch foreign offices but they were often majority men of oh. them you know and and some of the time and I would say throughout my life and I'm sure you've experienced this too is that sense of not being taken as seriously you know so there's not anything said but it's just just the way you're listened to or, or reacted to or 
not really listened to. Um, and I think, I hope that's changed to some extent, but I think that's still still there. But I think that gets easier as you stop having the male dominance of certain professions. But I think that's also something that takes a very long time to change. So you've got a lot more women into academic life, for instance, that has taken much longer to get them into professorships. And we see the same in politics. There are more women in politics in, in the UK, in Scotland, in Europe, around the world. Um, but there's only, I think, about three, three parliaments in the world where there's more than 50% of oh. women MPs. So I think dealing with discrimination is a multifaceted thing, but it certainly helped if you don't have a male-dominated, male-led society. And, and I think I was looking at these figures ahead of this conversation with you for, for Europe and how much the European Parliament has improved. And, and back in 1979, only 16% of the members of the European Parliament were women, and now it's 41%, which, which is good, but not good enough. It shouldn't have taken that long, and we're still not at 50%. But if you look at today's European Council, where the leaders of the European Council meet, um, so the prime ministers of all the 27 member states, not with the UK sadly anymore, and it's, it's 23 men to four women. And mm. so I think we have to look not just at numbers, but we have to look at hierarchies, don't we? And, and I think that, that relates to women's role in society in general, but, but it also relates, you asked me about my personal experience, and I think it relates to that, because it's not just your personal experience, is it? You're part of this yeah. still... Yeah. still unfair and still overly male-dominated society, even though, you know, half glass half full and half empty, you know, huge progress, and that's great, and it's brilliant to see, you know, Angela Merkel as the most powerful EU politician in, in the last 15 years, or some really tough women working in the European Commission, just talking about, you know, areas I, I focus on. Um, but we have to, going back to your phrase, we have to keep challenging, we have yeah. to keep critiquing, don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you say, Christy. I'm, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, being in a very male-dominated environment, um, you know, just numerically. Um, and I wonder if you've um, ever had that experience when you're in a meeting and you say something and nobody really reacts, like you make a suggestion, and then maybe five minutes later, a man makes the very same suggestion and people eh, oh, respond really positively and you think, wait a wee second, I only said that, you know, but has that ever happened to you? I think that's quite a common experience, isn't it? Yes, I think, I think that certainly has happened to me and I, I can't think of a specific example right <laughs> this minute, but, but um, yes, you know, that, that you say something, people listen or maybe they interrupt. Um, and then they move on and then someone says, a man says basically the same thing and that then the idea is greeted as... Yes, yes. And there's, that, there's that cartoon about it, isn't there? There's some sort of board meeting and there's a woman on round the table and she says something and the chairman, chairman says, that's a very good idea, Miss Smith. Mr. Brown, would you like to make would you like to make that suggestion? And you know, it just <laughs> it just catches the whole the whole kind of uh, situation there. And it, uh, it's both blatant and subtle, isn't it? I think there's been a lot of studies down the years that that, that have looked at those sorts of dynamics of how men and women 
talking groups and that women have to work harder to get in the conversation and that then men may tend to refer back to what a man said more than they'll refer back to what the woman said. And so you you may not feel you're being directly discriminated against, but but there's a sort of social signaling and hierarchy going on, isn't there? And and that's, that's quite hard to combat because because firstly partly it depends on you obviously and, and other women you have to keep pushing yourself and being assertive and and then being put up with being told you're too assertive or you're too tough or 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 things like that that men on the whole don't get told so so there's that double standard i've certainly experienced as in in sort of being in management positions in organizations so i remember seeing a survey that said well, a study, not a survey, and it's it said that it monitored uh, the time that women spent talking in particular meetings and the time that men spent talking, and men's perception was that w- the women talked far more, even when they didn't, even when you know measured chronologically, the men talked a lot more. The men had the perception that the women were were speaking a lot more which I thought was quite revealing. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I, I, I find that all the time, that if you're trying to have... I mean, you know, obviously we don't have conversations measuring if we've had exactly the same share of time, and we, we do know if someone has talked at us, male or female, or, and, and vice versa, you might think, oh, my goodness, I'm doing all the talking here. Um, but I, I do notice, certainly with some some conversations with some men, that that, you know, if it's a roughly even one, they're actually feeling I'm doing too much talking and, and just the signals they they give off. Um, I mean, I remember 20 years ago, I worked, I've mostly worked in, in think tanks and universities as a freelance journalist, so more, you know, somewhere where I can express my own views. But I, I worked for two years in the European Commission and I was working for one of the commissioners. It's, it's a sort of French system. They have what they call cabinets. It's in, I suppose for, for our system, it's like being a special advisor, but a, a somewhat more political or powerful one. I was a deputy head of cabinet, a deputy chief of staff, and very powerful meeting in Brussels every week is the meeting of these heads of cabinet. So they prepare the weekly meeting of the commissioners, and they're almost as powerful as them. And, and when I was there 20 years ago, there was 19 male heads of cabinet and one female head of cabinet and it, it gave an, and I used to sit uh, there was people like me sitting around that not at the table but but listening and stuff and it was an extraordinary atmosphere um the one woman was extremely tough she was she was a top french diplomat and the french always <laughs> sent very good people including women to to brussels but but it was a, a very bizarre thing. And, and even today, although Ursula von der Leyen, who's the first woman president of the European Commission, so we have to welcome that too. And she made sure finally and belatedly that there was pretty much 50-50 female-male commissioners, although there were 27, it can't be exact, so it's 13 women and, and 14, 14 men. But there, there's something like, um, I think it's four or five women heads of cabinet, chief of staff, at, at the moment to what will it be um, I'm trying to think I, yeah it's still 27 commissioners so to, to about 20 or 22 males so so again it's coming back to these hierarchies yeah it's yeah. no use pushing for 50-50 representation or having it in the commission but not having it at the very powerful levels below that yeah yeah and I mean I mean of course you can understand that moving up through the hierarchy just takes a bit 
longer and the first stage is to get 50-50 at, at say you know parliament level do, do you think I mean are you optimistic I mean is your kind of if you're in contact with you know women of a younger generation are you kind of optimistic with how they see themselves I like to be optimistic about it because because otherwise you know i'm 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 a big critic and skeptic but but i think pessimism just undermines your energy for the, for this sort of thing and and i also think you know i think it's it's good to say it's it's outrageous that it's taken this long to get to 41% of mps in the european parliament or that it's not yet at 50-50 and then at the same time we can say well thank goodness that we did achieve that and it took 40 years and it shouldn't have taken that long but, but goodness, at the same time, that is an achievement, and now we have to take it forward and not let it yeah. go backwards. And, and I think um, when you look at educational figures and tertiary education, you, you, you see women doing very well and participating in some cases more than young men. So I, so I think in that sense, it's very, it's very encouraging. But I think... Um, I think we're still very confused as a, as a society or societies about gender roles and gender expectations. I'm, I'm very concerned, uh, as others are, about the COVID crisis and the, the effect it's having on all of us, but especially on women who, who are maybe being pushed back into doing more childcare or in, in jobs that were, were more vulnerable to being lost, or, or if you think around the world and in, in developing countries where it's more difficult for young girls and children to get education and if they miss that crucial step of getting education that's going to affect yeah. their life chances yeah. throughout so so broadly I'm positive um, I don't think women are going to get back in their box and and I think I think it has moved forward, but as I said at the start, I, th I think these things can go backwards a bit as well as forward, and we have we have to guard against that, and, and we have to recognise how, how multifaceted it is, and therefore how 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 difficult, you know, because there's there's so many things to challenge or debate or see where we agree or where we yeah. disagree. Yeah. But it's like that's why we have to fight the small things and why it takes so long, isn't yeah. it? Because yeah. you are actually changing and trying to overturn a whole system. Yeah. But I was thinking to myself, I was thinking about this Muz thing, and I was thinking, well, if I was 21 again, would I be thinking of calling myself they? Because, you know, at one level, I quite approve of the idea of a, a pronoun, a singular pronoun that, that is for yeah. men and women. One last thing is... Yes. A, on the, the surname thing is that I read a really interesting article just the other day saying that you know there are quite a few female artists and and writers whose work was neglected simply because they got married and their names changed yeah, yeah. So, um, the, the, the recognition of their work was kind of lost because of different yeah. There was an article in the Guardian, I think. Anyway, sorry. No, no, it's it's fascinating, and it just tells us all this. You know, language matters, and so it's a really important discussion. Well, again, thanks very much for doing this. And no, you're um, welcome. It sounds great. I'm I'm sitting here. It's another Zoom call, and um, I'm sitting talking to Michelle Thompson. And Michelle is very known, well, very well known face in Scottish politics. 
you're standing in the Holyrood elections in May. Um, yeah. I also know, though, that you originally you you graduated from the Scottish Conservatoire. You worked as a musician. Mm. then changed direction, went into financial services, and you've got a great deal of experience as a businesswoman. So when we emailed you saying, would you like to contribute to this programme to celebrate International Women's Day, what sort of things came to mind? Well, actually, the first thing I did was to go and look at the the themes uh, for International Women's Day this year. And of course, the hashtag is choose to challenge Mm. and from challenge comes change. So let's all choose to challenge. And that got me thinking about what we can all do uh, to challenge things. And when I say we all, I don't just mean in politics, I mean in business, I mean in education, and so on. So I suppose they were my first thoughts when you got in touch with me. It would be good to hear your thinking about um, how things might change in business. You know, we've had, a, I've talked to a few people who've brought up the, you know, the whole topic about, um, well, partly the, the glass ceiling and working to break through that to get women in, you know, higher echelons of business, but also just expanding the kinds of roles that uh, women maybe think about doing or or don't think about doing. I mean, have you seen much of an improvement in that over the years? I I think I've seen some Mm. improvement. That's clearly the case, but nowhere near enough. Um, So there are still too few women leaders at the very top in business there are despite um, legislation to try and change it too few women on boards in executive rather than non-executive roles there are too few women in all the senior positions and I would also point out that the systems of how things are done in business are still quite male dominated and what I mean by that is in terms of the language so if you think about some of the words and the language that's used for about women I mean I know I've personally been called a variety of things in business headstrong for example (laughs) bossy is another one Uh, and they of course ambitious uh, is uh, another one And they are words that are only used about women, whereas, of course, ambition in particular is a word that's used uh, in a positive way about men. So it's not just about roles, it's fundamentally about systems and it's fundamentally about language and narrative of where women are asked to compete in quite an often an aggressive and demanding world when they compete in a certain way often like men well they don't like that men don't like that Uh, but then if they're natural and as themselves as women sometimes that then means that language is applied to them such as emotional or whining or hormonal uh, and so on. So I think we've still got a long way yeah, to go, yeah. although I do think things are better. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a bit of a lose-lose one, that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter's got a mug which says on it, 
I'm not bossy. I'm showing leadership qualities. No, well, I was going to say, I mean, the point about these words is they are only words are applied to women. Have you ever heard a man referred to as bossy? I haven't. And I was going to say that, uh, I mean, I remember in politics being referred to by Alan Cochran as brazen. And of course, he left off the word hussy. But it was certainly implied, and and that was another example of a word I have never heard a man called brazen. And I think I retorted to him over Twitter that brazen was a word about that men used about women that refused to know their place. And of course, that uh, creeps into as well that women even where they have very senior roles, there's some subtle kind of group behaviour goes on in meetings where the expectation is that the women wait for the men to speak first. Mm. Now, again, that doesn't always happen. I myself have experienced that in in certain uh, meetings. Although in fairness, in business, uh, I've never been called brazen, so maybe that's a good thing. (laughs) Do you think it's just a you know a question of slowly, slowly, or is there anything else that, say, legislation no, might no. do? I definitely don't think it's a question of slowly, slowly. And I know that people will have strong views about positive discrimination, for example, in yeah. boards, and legislation uh, has been brought in uh, to do that. But what's tended to happen is that at board level, women have been given what's called non-executive uh, roles, where the executive roles still disproportionately go to men. Now, I agree that that legislation had to be brought in, and I would say that more needs to be brought in as well, because things simply aren't changing fast enough. I don't have the figures in front of me today, but I remember when I did calculate it before, that at the rate of change that we've had since that legislation came in, it would still take a ridiculous amount of years Mm. to get to parity. So to my mind, what we've done thus far is not enough. Uh, So at governmental level, we've tended to focus on kind of public uh, companies rather than private ones. I think more needs to be in private companies. I think men themselves have a very important role because there's overwhelming evidence that having a balanced and a diverse uh, workplace, incidentally, in a whole range of areas, uh, it leads to much better business outcomes because where you've got a bunch of men together, and I guess maybe banking is a good example of that, and going back to some of the issues that occurred after the last banking crisis, RBS, for example, was often called out as an example where they had all men on, on their board. So in my opinion, much, much, much more needs to be done and men do have an important role as well. We need to value their contribution. They need to call out issues when they see it uh, for their daughters, for their wives, for their partners, for their mothers. And I do know a lot of good men that will do that as well. And things are changing if you look at the kind of younger generation, but just not fast enough. Just not fast enough, yeah. So so is is that that implying that when you do have women in those situations, there's uh, a sort of expanded range of values that come into the discussion? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, uh, because um, women, if you look at your typical kind of like women's lives and take, for example, the pandemic at the moment, we know that the impact of the pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women. For example, key sectors like hospitality have been badly affected and many, many women work in hospitality. We also know that in terms of keeping the kind of home unit going, it's it more of the work has been undertaken by women. More women have given up working to support the family um, through this time so it almost seems like at every the endemic level of our society is working uh, against women but going back to your point about women's experiences uh, I mean I know when when I worked both part-time and full-time in business I mean my husband's great and I can't complain about him he certainly pulled his weight but I had many friends and colleagues who basically worked full-time, sometimes managed. I mean, I had probably about seven male managers that reported to me, all of whom complained, incidentally, about how, how hard their lives were, even though some of their wives weren't working. But um, the many women I knew at that time were kind of doing it all. They were working full-time. Yeah. They were managing these big departments and they were running the home both from a financial perspective and doing the kind of organisation of the kids right you've got whatever football today and there's your ship and so on and I think a lot of that still goes on um, you know and these to be honest I think that these are the more minor easy examples that people can latch on to the big picture, which is goes right back to the politics, is our systems, if you like. Mm. Take, for example, our legal system. It was developed by men. Women didn't have a seat at the table. Our financial systems are based on systems developed by men, and women didn't have a seat at the table. Everything that we're doing nowadays has an IT component. Algorithms are built to quickly process various transactions when we're all doing stuff on computers like our insurance and so on. Now, how many of the people developing the algorithms, the computer programmers, are men? It's still in the majority. They're developing them on kind of biases in society that men hold and it's almost like it's building in even further our systems bias against women and that is a concern for me going forward so it is a much bigger picture and debate than just what's happening in business it's a fundamental level of all of our societies yes yeah so i mean that's interesting thinking about a systemic that change even on that nitty-gritty yeah. level of algorithms I mean, do you think the current, well, um, I was going to say enthusiasm, maybe that's too strong a word, but the current interest in um, thinking how to implement a well-being economy, do you think that's something that's going to come to the fore? It does sound like it might be something that would help address that imbalance you've been talking about. Well, I mean, I would hope so. Um, because a well-being economy in its purest sense takes account of all these different um, facets of our society. 
And it would be a welcome step forward from where we've been. I, I was watching a, a TV programme uh, the other night talking about class and how it's affected people through the ages and what do people feel about their class. But what struck me about the programme was that it didn't mention sex within class. I mean, it pointed out there was previously an upper class and a middle class and working class and so on. But what it didn't point out was that women were subjugated regardless of their class. class. You know, if you look back to the days when if if there was a, a, a wealthy woman and she inherited something, she would promptly lose all that or require to give it away to her husband. And the programme talked about class, but it talked about class from a male perspective. And I thought even now when people are doing that, uh, they didn't bring in how important sex is into the into the debate. So I do hope that talking about well-being will start to bring that in. But again, I think things significant, more significant change needs to be made. We're just not getting there fast enough. And if anything, I would argue that uh, the current incarnation of the Tories in Westminster are leading uh, the UK backwards. Uh, I mean, you know, they've they've removed various roles. I mean, they've had some quite outrageous adverts, you know, uh, going back to the days when a family was only about the women did, the kids and the man worked and so on. Um, So we've got a real challenge within the UK. And of course, Scotland has, has always done more and I hope that we continue to do more. I think it's really important. Great to talk to you, Michelle, and uh, thanks very much for agreeing to to come on the programme. Um, we'll... Hi, I'm Sheena Wellington, and you're listening to Indie Live Radio on International Women's Day. Have a good one, and always remember, if your boyfriend tells you you can't do something, tell him to sling his hook. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr Nigget Riaz. Nigget is an academic, a community and political activist from Glasgow. Hello Nigget. Hi Valerie, thank you for inviting me. Well it's an absolute pleasure, I'm so glad you found time in your very busy schedule because I know you work extremely hard. Um, so the first thing I'd like to ask you is really your take on what, what does International Women's Day mean to you as a, as a woman and also maybe a comment on this year's theme which is Choose to Challenge. An interesting question. And firstly, I can never say no to you, Valerie. So so thank you once again for, for having me here. International Women's Day and the theme that they've chosen uh, for this year, Choose to Challenge, are part of my everyday life. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 54 this year and I remember right from a very early age, being one of seven sisters and living in an extended family. My parents were from Pakistan. How the family would fall into mourning every time uh, one of my my sisters were born, very much because they valued women uh, as burdens, as a financial burden, a reputational burden, rather than to be valued in their own right. And where boys were, were seen as like future breadwinners and looking after their elderly parents at that time. So it, it's been against that kind of background of growing up. My sisters and I have challenged it every step of the way. We've we've chosen to do things our own way, and whether it's in our homes or whether we wanted to return to education. I was told, um, you know, I'd, I'd be better off learning how to cook more effectively and do my ironing, 
stay in that kitchen, all that kind of stereotypical uh, nonsense that, that many women in, in communities across the world have to face. And I thought, no, but, you know, great, I'll do that. But there has to be more in life. So I went, I used opportunities that were given to me to, to go back to college, to study, to make sure that my own children, I treated all three of my children equally. I have two boys and a girl. It's, I will not feed into any of this cultural nonsense that daughters are a burden. No, my daughter's fabulous. Thank you very much. She's uh, independent. She's feisty. Um, she's a single mother. And I'm just proud of every day of how how she looks after herself, how she supports her child now. So it's about making sure that we fight for equality. We fight to be heard. Uh, we don't fall into stereotypes. And I've done that when I, I entered the political sphere again, because I wanted to, to make a difference. Very much enjoyed the majority of my time it, in that space. But again, it was it, towards the end, it was very much about challenging the, the narrative of social justice, equality and fairness. I, I felt that well, what did those words actually mean to marginalized communities, to our disabled communities, to, you know, to the LGBTI community? It, it was just like, well, you know, I, I know what it means for the, the white middle class members of our society, but how does that translate? So that, that fed into my research as a, as a doctoral student and, and now a researcher and, and some of the work I'm doing for another ex uh, organization where I'm looking at uh, embedding race equality in our universities and colleges. So it, it's been that kind of journey where, you know, it's about holding up that mirror to power, to, to say, please look, this is what you want to see for yourself how does that actually translate into other sections of, of our community of society and what can we do better to to look at inequalities that we have to traverse on a daily basis that's really interesting that, no, that is hugely interesting you know because you're you're talking about that from a personal perspective from your own experience in your own family but also um in your own professional and academic um, career you've and politically as well which is linked but separate that you have challenged not only stereotypes about women but also I know through your work through you know anti-racism and sometimes that can be through saying things when I read some of the things you write it, it, it by virtue of being challenging it has to make you feel uncomfortable you know and as a white person I read it and I think you know and you are challenging people's you know you're taking people out of their comfort zone and making them think about things about unconscious bias and so on that I, I think it's so important and you're backing it up with bust academic research which is really important so do you would you say that women in academia, would you say they bring a different perspective than male academics to that kind of challenging of stereotypes or does it depend on the person? I think it depends on the person. It's, it's very much about um, where they see themselves in academia. Do they want to be in a position of power? What steps will they take to get to that position of power? Some will 
will take on a mantle for, for the sake of being seen as a champion or an advocate until they get to the position that they want and then they become the very gatekeepers that we rally against. And there are others that will consistently take academics with them once they are in that position of power. So they have a louder voice uh, uh, around that table where they are heard and where the decisions are taken on board. And as as a woman of colour, when you talk about discomfort, you know, when we talk about racism, it makes our white colleagues very uncomfortable, you know, and quite emotional at times. But what we'd like to do is when we'd like them to turn their gaze and look at us and say, well, if it makes us uncomfortable, these people, that is their daily lived experiences. How do these microaggressions affect them, their mental psyche, because they're not being validated or they're being dismissed as like, you know, we don't want to see it. We don't need, therefore, we don't need to take that responsibility and accountability. So it's very much about saying, no, we are here. We're here. I'm here as personally as as a woman of color, uh, as a parent and a grandparent saying that what happened to me in the 1970s, I do not want to see a repeat of that for my my either my children or my grandchildren. To me, Scotland ha- says all the right things and I want to believe in them. And we've done fantastically well on some very progressive policies. But to me, it's I want when I scratch the surface, I actually want to see evidence and action. And what, that is what I will, I will disrupt the narrative. I more radical change. More change, radical change. Rather than and, just lip service to... And I think that being a member on the Social Justice and Fairness Commission, having that voice along with Michelle Campbell uh, and Ju- Julia Strakowska and uh, Graham Campbell, having that ethnic voice has has kind of empowered us to to have a lot more to say about how we want a future and independent Scotland to look like. That's that's really reassuring and great that you have these strong voices with Julia and um, Michelle who I believe is standing for um, a parliament for Holyrood and Graham too so I hope they wish them the best obviously. No Um, definitely having someone like Michelle with her background would be phenomenal for the Scottish um, Scottish parliament. She has a background as a nurse in the in the National Health Service and mental health isn't she? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really useful. In fact I think she came tantalisingly close to being selected as a constituency candidate was it not one of the first time ever that there was a tie in the selection ballot and she tied with another person and they had to mm-hmm. rerun it and she was narrowly defeated so hopefully she may have a chance of being elected regional. Well, anyway, I hope so. Yeah, but um, so one last thing. Um, yeah, you're talking about racism and universities, and I must say, I, I, I don't, I haven't read all the details, but I was quite horrified recently. I live quite near the university, and I'm a, an alumna of Glasgow University, and I was really horrified recently to see the survey that was done, and I believe that Anton Muscatelli publicly apologised for it to say that there was a huge incidence of racist harass racial harassment on on campus you know you, you could kind of think well you know the campus is like in the middle of the city and maybe people could experience harassment but the idea that 
students at the university would I think that it was a shocking figure it was like 50 percent had mm-hmm. experienced racial harassment on campus and I found that profoundly I'm looking for a word that's not an understatement not disappointing I was just disgusted to hear that I mean is that something that squares with your experience as, as an academic It's the Equality and Human Rights Commission. They published a report in 2019 called Universities Challenge. They they found uh, very similar findings of racism um, towards students and staff. And the the Glasgow University report was in response to that. And I'm glad because these are very honest conversations. They they need to be had for for that kind of race audit to happen, to say, well, this is what's happening and how are we going to address these issues to create a safe and equal, socially equal and just environment for for all students to take place where there is that respect and dignity given to to both you know uh, BAME staff and students so because I am part of that that area where I am looking at um, creating a toolkit which is funded by the Scottish Funding Council and the project is led by Advance HE. Um, Khadija Mohammed, a a senior lecturer and programme leader at UWS is the chair of that steering group, which is made up of 12, mainly being professionals, academics, and postgraduate students who have that lived experience and academic knowledge that they bring, they've brought to the project, where we've created a set of assets on how to tackle racism and to be able to talk about white, uh, about whiteness, uh, racism, and race in a much more confident manner. It's to take away that stigma. It's to, it's about having making people aware of what a microaggression is. Why, you know, why there could be something they say could be seen as offensive. It's like somebody goes, well, "Where do you really come from?" It's about having that that person should have that understanding of why that can be seen as offensive because it's very much signalling that person that's been asked the question as an outsider and not belonging. So it could be done. It, you know, in, in a more diplomatic manner. So it, it's it's about looking at language and how we can be kinder. It's about looking at the terminology and it's about looking at our leadership within our universities and colleges, taking more responsibility and ownership of tackling racism. And we did have a declaration against racism by universities and colleges last August, which was phenomenal. Uh, Richard Lockhead, Lockhead, the the Minister for Further and Higher Education and Sciences, he endorsed a a statement against racism. But, you know, this is brilliant. But what we do need is is more than words. We need to see action. Material change. Material change. We need to see that impact um, of whatever we've created. We need to see it being measured year on year and to, to ensure that accountability and responsibility stays there. It's just not yet another tick box exercise. It's And it's not at the expense of other issues. It's like, you know, when we look at gender equality, race equality, LGBT and disability, they should all be funded equally because they, you know, only by looking at society as a whole and by tackling the inequalities at the same time together, can we, can we hope 
to, to bring the rest of society with us. Well, that, that is great. And I'm sure that anyone listening will be grateful that they have such a passionate and eloquent advocate speaking on their behalf. Also through uh, the Social Justice Commission, which is a, a really good initiative, which I mean, I think it's only been going for about a year, is that right? That's right, yes. And we will have the report out in the next few weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Will do. And so I'd just like to thank you very much indeed, Nigget, for taking the time to talk to us today uh, on our International Women's Day special. And I hope you'll come back again in the future and speak to us again. It was a pleasure as always. Thank you so much, Valerie. This is Marlene. I'm back. I'm sitting here with another of our guests for this uh, this morning's International Women's Day special daytime show edition. And uh, I'm now sitting here with Lynn Copeland. We're going to be talking to Lynn for a few minutes. And Lynn, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the programme and have a chat with us. You're very welcome, Marlene. So we know you're a, a you know activist, and um, we know that you've got uh, concerns about climate change, and um, we we also know you're involved with Mums for Scottish Independence, and we know you're involved with the Geary Women for Change. You've just been telling me that you know uh, a few years ago you went down to Edinburgh for one of the International Women's Day celebrations, so. This year, the theme is Choose to Challenge. Does that spark memories for you of being down there before? Or, you know, thoughts about, you know, where are we with position of women worldwide in 2021? Or, you know, even just a bit more at home, you know, with your own group, the Geary Women for Change. How's Well, we, we established Geary Women for Change way back, as you know, Marlene, around 2017. And then the first ever event that we held was the suffragettes centenary. We marked that really well. Um, we filled a local hall with about 200 odd women and we got women from every political party to come along and, and chat to us and tell us more about the actual, you know, how to get into politics. They got us all fired up. Um, you know, filled us full of confidence and it was a good thing because that yeah. that was why we established Geary Women in the first place um, and as I say it was a quite a, a wide range of political opinion um, still is amongst the group you know, we all have our, our, our own um, ideas about how things should be going forward but one thing that does keep us all together is this, you know, this idea, you know, women are very very, they get things done, don't they? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They get in a group and they get things done. Um, and we sit down and we, we talk about different issues, political issues, and about women's women's issues, women's concerns, um, and how you know how the political people are performing for us really, yeah, how our government's yeah. coming through, coming through with um, results and that. Last time we spoke, I think we spoke about the NHS and we spoke about Geary Women's Safeguard or Scottish Health Service. Um, where we actually um, we trained facilitators on the back of a wee grant that we managed to, to get um, from a group in Scotland. So, um, so they gave us some, some money to go and train facilitators so that we could bring the message out about the NHS and that we'd go out into the community, go to all the various different village halls 
And that was tremendously successful, we feel, because a lot of people don't actually know what goes on behind the scenes at the NHS. There's so much propaganda on on television, etc. So we highlighted a lot of issues as regards that. Um, And we did raise awareness, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people would know an awful lot more about um, the stealth privatisation of the NHS down south, etc. We kicked that one off just after the Softajet conference in 2018. So there's so much happened since then, even since the the start of our campaign, there's been changes. Brexit's happened. We we now had the Internal Market uh, Act, it is now, 2020. Um, And also we've got this trade bill that's coming along. Now, these incorporate an awful lot of the, the... what to say, topics to do with actual stealth privatisation. You know, public procurement, for example, is a big feature of the NHS. And when we spoke last time, I think I spoke about how Westminster had decided to um, roll over, if you like, certain elements that were coming back from the EU. And they were doing this using, um, it's a thing called statutory instruments, which means that there's no debate and there's no vote vote about anything to do with it. They just simply roll them over and they become part of law. Um, And what what would happen is that they would look to have a common framework right across the UK. So this has implications, obviously, for Scotland um, in that they may well decide that they want public procurement to be, you know, the common framework throughout the whole of the UK. And that would impact on the NHS because the NHS is actually, you know, that's the bedrock of the NHS is the public procurement aspect. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, back when, well, the NHS in the UK as a whole was being set up and, and probably before that, there was probably a generation of women there who were having similar conversations about what they want for the NHS and it was really important to do this, that and look after, um, you know, women's health and well, obviously not just women. But do you see what I mean? There was probably a, 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 a struggle at least at some point way back then. And, you know, if you think uh, worldwide, I mean, you certainly come across stories, you know, in the, in the being reported in the news about women in developing countries and they're having to, you know, push their politicians to set up better healthcare provision. And yet here we are back in the UK 2021 and to some extent we're having to restate those whole arguments, you know, another another kind of uh, generation of women having to come to the fore to try and, in our case, it's to protect something. But do, how do you feel yourself? I mean, are you, uh, you know, sort of optimistic um, about you know, how direction of things are going with respect to women's position in the world? Or, you know, is it a time when maybe we do slip back a bit? Um, I think possibly a bit of both, actually. You know, there's so much that we have achieved in terms of improving conditions for, you know, in childcare and all this other good stuff. Um, Education-wise, you know, women are involved in in a wide range of uh, professions now. Um, you know, it's, it's, there, there is no stereotypical kind of approach to things now. Women can be what they want to be. Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, that's that's a a very positive aspect. 
And I think as well, in my own background, I'm a scientist, so in my own background, it's good to see that there are young women that are very keen to um, put themselves forward in that kind of sphere in the STEM, you know, STEM subjects and try and get themselves into engineering, all sorts of, you know, medical related type stuff. And in Scotland, we've got the highest percentage of bioscientists, you know, in the UK. We have a tremendous amount of bioscience and it's one of the areas in the economy which is really progressing rather well. Um, You know, I think the the Scottish government had set a target that the biosciences would increase, um, you know, the GDP by a certain amount, certain percentage. And that was exceeded, you know, but, you know, it was just spent beyond their expectations as far as that concerned. And that's something that doesn't get an awful lot of, um, you know, publicity. As far as women are concerned, there's a lot of women working labs, you know. And uh, because of the dexterity, you know, we, we the smaller hands, and, and you know that does come in. It does come into play uh, from time to time. Pay attention yeah, to would, detail and keep the keep the records, uh, you know, well up to yeah. date. Yeah, I know. M- multitasking. Multitasking. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I know so what you mean because when I, I mean, it's our, my daughter's forty now. Oh, don't know how that happened, but anyway. When she was uh, maybe second or third year in secondary school, and we were in a parents' evening, um, so, so her husband and I were in, we were chatting away to her physics teacher, who was also the head of the general science department, and we were chatting away, and he was saying how good she was at physics and math, chemistry. And then he sort of paused and he said, um, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, it, she, um, we're sure that she would be very good going forward, you know, specialising in these subjects. It's just that, you know, sometimes we know that parents, you know, of daughters are a little bit, um, you know, wary sometimes of their daughters doing that. <laughs> and then my husband and I burst out laughing and said, yeah, that's okay. You don't have to worry about that with us because we're both scientists and we'll be, you know, if she, do what she wants, but if that's what she mm-hmm. wants to do, that's great. But I, I, I it did, um, well, it's obviously because I've remembered that because I, I did think, well, you know, even then, what was that, uh, 20, 25 years ago, even then, you know, there was a teacher who was, wanting to encourage women uh, girls to go into and study that but also just aware that there might be a bit of resistance coming from their families and doing his best actually mm-hmm. very tactfully to um, to maneuver around that um you know it's not that long ago isn't it i mean 25 years hopefully that's even that doesn't need to get said now by physics teachers when they're talking to their, mm-hmm. their parents <laughs> I think it's quite important, though, that women are taking different direction because of the, you know, the business with climate change. Yes. Because Gary women had, just before lockdown, and in fact, about a week or so before lockdown, we filled the town hall again in Inveruri um, and, and brought in speakers from all over on all different subject areas to do with climate change. Oh. And um, we got a phenomenal response for that as well. It was called the eco-emergency event. Ah, oh, right, yeah. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. So it covered a multitude of things. We had a huge um, screen in the hall and we played different films about people recycling things and other films about the environment, you know, and biodiversity, lots of different um, subject matter on the videos. We had stands as well, a few stands from, you know, different uh, people were there as well with different subject matter again. Mm -hmm. And then we had ongoing upstairs, we had lots of different seminars 
So we had like three different seminars going on at the same time. Um, and we were really quite, you know, we were very, very pleased at the outcome yeah, of that. fantastic. Um, you know, people said, oh, yeah, that was really great. You know, when you yeah. have another event and all yeah. this. And we had planned to actually have follow-ups to that. Um, and we had some funding left over and we were looking to have um, climate cafes. Oh, yeah. But of course, yeah. with, with the lockdown, lockdown all that was yeah. knocked on the head, yeah. you know. So, yeah. but we do, we continue with that. We've got a Facebook page and we often put up um, information about climate. Every, you know, every every aspect of climate change, innovation, you know, new product. And, yes. But is. also, and the, there was a, a really interesting girl, um, a young woman called Jane Morrison, who is um, part of an alliance, Wellbeing Alliance. And she was there and, and, and she was very good. She wanted to participate, you know, people to participate in um, what she was doing in her session. And that was really, really good. And they are allied, um, Jane Morrison's group are allied um, to a woman called um, Catherine Trebek, oh, who, wrote, who, wrote. who wrote the the economics of arrival. Yeah, yeah. So, th- so that was really interesting, and in that that's another area that women are underrepresented in mm. is economics. So here we were, you know, we're fortunate enough to have Jane there to explain things to people, and it, that really stirred our interest. Or, you know, we got going on that. And we started to look look at things that were topical, you know, the Scottish currency, looking down the line at what would happen post independence, you know, yeah. how you know would that would be tackled and everything. But it was just really, really interesting that there are all of these women out there that are writing books and doing presentations, etc., formulating all sorts Fantastic. of economic yeah. policy. Yeah. Um, you know, and and sort of, you know, breaking the mould kind of thing. You know, your idea of an economist is, is some geezer in a suit, you know, shirt and tie in a suit, um, you know, talking all sorts of mathematical models and everything of that kind, you know. Yes, um, yes. And so, I mean, it's true, isn't it? There's a business about breaking through the glass ceiling, which probably was, you know, are still in the process of doing, or at least the higher echelons of that but you're right there's also just breaking out the mole of what kind of you know interests or jobs or careers or anything that women should be doing and I mean you know obviously no reason why they shouldn't be doing all of them all or any of them too well look it's been really great uh, talking to you and once again thanks so much for uh, being prepared to come on and uh, you know just give us your ideas, thoughts, experience that we can that we can put out in the programme. So thanks again, Lynn. Thank you, Marlene. Hi, I'm Kayla McMahon. I'm the convener of Young Scots for Independence and this is Indie Live Radio for their International Women's Day special. And I think this year is even more special because the message is choose to challenge. And I think for all of the women in the independence movement, that is so, so important that we are challenging the norms and challenging the narrative, not only of the union, but of our own movement and making sure that we're bringing absolutely everyone with us so that our independent Scotland will be home for anyone who wants to call it that. This is Marlene again, and uh, it's uh, it's another day, and it's another Zoom meeting with more guests for our International Women's Day programmes. Um, I'm sitting here with Heather Anderson, who's a councillor down in the borders, and Julie Bell, who's a councillor up in Angus. But as well as doing that, both of them are on the National Committee of Women for Independence. 
so we've got you here to talk this morning and what did you think? Maybe Heather, if we go to you first, um, when you got the email from us, you know, saying would you like to contribute to a programme about International Women's Day, what sort of things came to mind? Um, well, lovely to be back, great to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the thing I thought that might be of interest is um, Women for Indy haven't been uh, quiet. They've been working away since back in 2012. And one of the things we've been working on is a Womanifesto, um, which we're certainly going to use in the next independence referendum, which will hopefully be soon. But we may also have it ready for the Holyrood hustings that are coming Ooh. up. Um, and the way that we've done a, a manifesto is meet and discuss things with loads of women. So um, I played a part in national councils over the years on food farming and the environment, because as you know, I'm an organic farmer yeah. um, and campaigner on land reform and land use. Um, and we just had this fantastic day in Glasgow, you know, when we were allowed to meet and be sociable. And there must have been about 120 women there very feisty women um, and I did a presentation on all the issues and then we put them into um, tables of 10 and they got 50 um, odd statements which they had to sort into the 10 commandments um, of food and then we went round the 11 odd tables wow. and we took the top commandment from each table and we eventually whittled it down to the top 10 so it's, it's just brilliant stuff um, so it covers things like everyone can afford to give their children nutritious and tasty food and healthy and nutritious food is affordable um, it's got great things like all workers and food from farmers to waitresses earn the living wage yeah. Our public kitchen uses local food and cooks from fresh. Um, so very straightforward things. My, one of my favourites is our cattle, sheep, pigs and poultry are treated kindly and humanely. Mm. And um, because it was a group of women, they refused to stick to the rules. So one <laughs> of the Ten Commandments is, we, this is one commandment, we are restoring soil health and increasing soil carbon and there will be more trees on farms locking up carbon and providing shade for livestock and we have halved our use of antibiotics in livestock and pesticides in food. There's about six commandments in that one. <laughs> so there's more information and content in that one commandment than in most books that are written about farming. So, um, And there's a lovely one about when land changes hands, the potential owners have to show how they will manage the land for public good. So there was a real debate about all the issues on the environment, um, management of, you know, caring for livestock, producing decent food, and this whole thing of it can't be that good food is um, an elitist privilege. It has to be that good food is an absolutely basic right. Everybody should have the right to access, afford um, decent food, um, there's a lovely one here of every um, woman who wants to grow food should have access to land to do it. So you can imagine the energy yes. and the debate and, you know, saying, well, we'll say this. And somebody says, could you just put a bit in there about soil health? <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've got a really 
um, robust and powerful section on how we see ourselves in relation to the land and food production and how we convert that into really basic human rights and taking pride in how we look after our land and feed our families. Oh, so fantastic. it's a joyous day. And presumably, well, that would be women from all over Scotland who, who congregated oh, yeah. in, in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah a, real, a real rabble of people. It sounds like you've got... Um, You've got a, a ready-made crowd of hecklers for the next of things as well. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. And and just just that great thing about people learning in live time. So, you know, people who might yeah. have got stuff about food hadn't necessarily thought about chicken um, and cattle or soil health, but they put it all together um, and they make sense of it really quickly. So it was... Um, a wonderful day and really strong statement so I'm really keen that we campaign and advocate for this to be just part of what we do yeah. and that the right to food is a basic right not a privilege yeah indeed and I mean what struck just hearing you just read those out what struck me was just how interconnected all those things yeah. are on the big scale about health of soil and carbon kind of storage and everything how you look after the animals but also just on the, the level of bit more individually like yes good food but also the income to be able to uh you know afford that good food it's fantastic yeah. hearing that and, and just to come back to that point um they're also to do our history so you know we had the largest scale um removal of people from land in the history of the world and people came from farming and went up to a tenement without a kitchen in the 1700s. So that whole thing of living on sugar that was imported from the colonies, so bread and jam, um, and not cooking and not having a kitchen is very deep in our yeah. culture. Yeah. So a lot of Scotland's relationship with food is to do with Scotland's relationship with land. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, and, and whether we think we're worth it. Yeah, yeah. We have to think we're worth feeding well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Julie, I see you've got your hand up, as it were. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd love to come in on that actually, because we did a couple of events around the economy um, with Angela O'Hagan from the Scottish Women's Budget Group um, at one of them, and I know that sounds a really dry discussion, but actually it was incredibly powerful because it is as used like the introduction of a universal basic income to address some of the issues that, that Heather was raising there, but not just in an independent Scotland, but while we're getting there, looking at our economic policy to make sure it's gender competent. We can't deliver on a well-being uh, economy unless it is gender competent. And I think the pandemic has shown us if anything ever has, the importance of addressing those inequities in the economy where um, we can deliver on a, a more caring economy. Our, the vast majority of our frontline workers throughout the, the pandemic are women. They're occupations that are gender segregated quite often. Um, women have borne the brunt of the childcare and the homeschooling. Um, during the pandemic, uh, our, quite a lot of women have lost their jobs or, yeah. or have had reduced hours uh, because of um, just, the, the, you know, being locked down. And 
women academics as well have had a huge impact because of all the homeschooling and the additional care responsibilities. So when we address the importance of those frontline workers, you know, including retail workers, um, we really know who key workers are now. Mm -hmm. We need to properly value them. And I include unpaid carers in that. Um, It's a massive issue. And that's something that um, my coverage of International Women's Day uh, is going to take on board. I'm running an event um, on Thursday um, around a wellbeing economy, a gender budget, uh, and looking at just how um, the, the current structure does not work well for women and what we could do to address it. Um, and, and in fact, another um, issue that's come up through the pandemic for us in Angus is um, how women access support throughout the pandemic. And we're piloting a women's centre model with our community planning partnership, um, the, the third sector is leading. I think the third sector uh, really stepped up to the plate and is an absolutely vital part of our economy. Um, our volunteers uh, and our, our paid staff within the third sector have been pivotal in helping us to deliver on the portal who shielded um, those unpaid carers who are part of that cohort. And we really need a discussion nationally around how we truly value the caring economy um, because that will impact us all. You know, if you look at things like shopping, working, eating, supporting locally um, what we have, that also ties into the sustainability agenda and more active travel as well. So you're right, it is very holistic, which is exactly the way I like to look at things. Um, So so if you address those inequities, for example, um, you're actually creating a much better society for everybody, not just women. Indeed. So is is the wellbeing economy something that you'd like to really see developed and taken forward then um, at Holyrood? Well, very much so. And that, I mean, the policies around uh, fairer duties uh, are already pretty well embedded in in what the current Scottish government is doing. Um, So it's really about stepping up uh, with a few gear changes to to address that structurally. And we'll have a proper opportunity to do that when when we are independent. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot that we can do at the moment, I think. And, And when you look at you know, uplifts in in um, the, the national living wage and and NHS staff um, salaries. I think we need to we need to keep addressing that um, because it is a challenge retain attracting and retaining clinical staff. Um, and and I know from working in the NHS and being involved in in Public Health Scotland and our health and social care partnership in Angus, you know. It's, our frontline carers, whether they're in the NHS or social care or the third sector or the private sector, are stretched to the absolute max. Mm. Um, and we need to make sure that these are posts that continue to attract people, that we have enough capacity to meet demand um, with a, a, an older population. Um, and we need to work at the other end as well to address those health inequalities that have been absolutely exacerbated 
by the pandemic. There were issues that existed before, yeah. but the people who've been most affected are even more affected because of the pandemic. And the, the increase in concerns around mental health uh, and resilience and distress and trauma actually affects not just people who've been bereaved or who are surviving with the long-term effects of COVID, but our frontline staff. You know, vicarious trauma is an issue and we are seeing that in our workforces. So, you know, these are big concerns that won't be fixed very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to look to, to the longer term to to address that um, so that so that people can thrive and we don't leave anyone behind. One of the issues in the manifesto is around um, get, getting powers over immigration um, and that ability to attract workers and reprioritize different professions. So there's a commitment in here about midwifery and attracting people from around the world to come and be midwives and giving it a higher profile as a profession. Um, and one of the really interesting things that happened in this pandemic is the dominant image um, through the whole of COVID ha have been carers and nurses, you know, and, and health professionals. Yeah, and I yeah. just keep thinking back to the, in the eighties, I'm quite old. Um, in the eighties, the dominant image was bankers yeah. um, drinking champagne. And you just think, so there's all these young people growing up and they're seeing a valued role um, that's not a banker or a stockbroker, it's a carer or a health professional. Now that 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 may that will have a long term impact on what we think it's worth doing. And the good side of the COVID pandemic has been that we have prioritised older people. We have taken very seriously protecting and looking after older people. And we've now got this commitment to a national care service. You know, and Jean Freeman um basically changed the pay structure so that everybody yeah. in the care sector was given the living wage and was given enhanced um, health, you know, sick leave. So I think there have been very definite steps to say this is who we are, these are the people we value, these are the professions that we want to invest in, this is our long-term future, that we're going to look after our people and train the people who look after them well. And the same with nursery nurses. You know, that entire profession has been restructured, refunded, um, um, with a huge investment in early yeah. learning and childcare yeah. and professionalisation of the job, yeah. you know. So these are things to be proud of and work towards. Yeah. And and I mean, Jane Jane Freeman's had a hard a hard time the last year with that, doing that job, and she's um, she's done it really well. I mean, the the first meeting, the Women for Independence meeting, I went to in yeah, it was in right. Glasgow. She was there, you know. She was there, yeah. kind of talking. No, you, you you think she's the cabinet secretary, and we uh, think she's a, a a women for indie board yeah. member. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same, same with Whit Philippa Whitford. You know, she's on, she's on, you know, Newsnight and everything else. And then you think, yeah, she was at that meeting as well. So, you know, it was two so such talented women. I mean, they're not the only talented women that are at that meeting, but they they they're sort of stuck in my mind because they've got such a high public profile uh, now. But uh, yeah. so this manifesto, you're going to you you're hoping to be able to take it to the current to the well, the upcoming Holyrood elections. Is that right? Or 
Well, it was certainly intended for the um, referendum, um, uh-huh. the, the next referendum, uh, as asks for what we would like to see in an independent Scotland. But there's certainly there's material in there that um, all the political parties could could benefit from perusing. I think, um, and they've stolen some of our ideas. So an end to um, period poverty and support during the menopause. You think good. You know, it's good. We'll just need to get it out there and they could steal some more steal ideas. Steal some more, exactly. Yeah. Feel free, really. Might as well yeah. be. When you've got good ideas, you just have to be generous with them. Yeah. So, listen, uh, Jules and Heather, it's just been it's been really great sitting talking to you. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, yeah joining us uh, today and on this particularly, you know, celebration of International Women's Day. Just thanks very much for coming. We hope you enjoyed today's programme and maybe you managed to listen to some of the other shows in a series of four that played on Indie Live Radio on Friday, Saturday and today. Uh, These four shows will be repeated and I'll give you details of that in a minute and they'll be available on demand. Marlene and I would like to say a huge thank you to all the women who have given so generously of their time to speak to us and do interviews for you. Um, And I'll just remind you of a few of who they were in case you would like to catch up in future. On Friday, we featured Rosa Salee, Isabel Lindsay, Clark's Women for Independence, Shona Craven, Alison Thulis and Agnes Tommy. On Saturday, we featured Ruth Wishart, Breach Smith, Rahana Abid, Caelan McMahon, Vivian Martin and Renee Slater. Earlier today, the show included Sheena Wellington, Leslie Riddich, Tina Yu, Anamisha McCoy, Jean Anderson and Eileen Budd. And today's show, you heard from Kirsty Hughes, Michelle Thompson, Nigget Riaz, Lynn Copeland, Heather Anderson and Jules Bell. These shows will be repeated tomorrow, Tuesday the 9th of March between 1pm and 3pm, Wednesday the 10th of March between 11am and 1pm, Thursday the 11th between 5pm and 7pm and on Friday between 11am and 1pm. Finally, Marlene and I would like to thank all the rest of the Indie Live team that have helped us put this show together, particularly Jerry Mulvena, Steve Callahan, and Fiona McGregor. And now, before our theme tune, Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves, we will play you out with a selection of messages from women in different languages. You'll hear from Carole Justafré from France, Monica Carvel-Monturiol from Catalonia, from here in Glasgow, Nigit Riaz and Tina Yu and Susan Duncan, and from Dundee, Joao Key. And you're going to hear them doing their greetings partly in English, but also in French, Catalan, Farsi, Punjabi, Cantonese and Mandarin, and in Portuguese. We hope you enjoy it. Happy International Women's Day to you all. Hello, everybody. Je m'appelle Carole Justafré, and I'm speaking from France. And uh, I'm saying hello to everyone who's listening to Indie Live Radio. Well, as it is La Journée Internationale des Femmes, and being a French woman, I wanted to say a few words. 
And uh, I was telling my, some of my friends that being a woman is a challenge in itself, especially, you know, even in Europe, because even if we have rights now, we still have to fight for equal pay. And um, in some countries within Europe, abortion is still a big problem. And there are people, even women, fighting against the right to abortion. And I think that for us women, the most important thing is to get an education and to have a job. Because as my great-grandmother told my mother years and years ago, never be financially dependent on a man. Get your job. And if one day something goes wrong, you can leave. So... Um, I know that even nowadays in the 21st century, because of some traditions, some religious traditions and, you know, customs, women don't get access to education. They don't get access to, uh, for example, the pill. And um, so they have children and life for them is very difficult. And uh, as for us, for example, French women in France, at the beginning of the lockdown, the president decided to uh, shut all the schools. And as most French women work, it was very difficult for them to keep the children at home and uh, they couldn't go to work. So most of the time the husbands would go to work and the women would stay home. So to me, education and financial independence are the most important things for women around the world. And as long as there's a Journée Internationale des Femmes, it means that we'll have to fight till this Journée Internationale des Femmes disappears. Hi in the audience. I am Monica from Barcelona in Catalonia. I want to send a warm hug in these hard times we are living for the Interna International Women's Day. I want to send you a lot of energy to keep on working for the Scottish independence. On this special day, I want to give all my support to all Catalan women unjustly imprisoned by the Spanish government and also to Clara Ponsati, who has been sheltered in my beloved Scotland. En aquest dia especial, vull donar el meu suport a totes les dones empresonades injustament pel govern espanyol i també a la Clara Ponsatí, que s'ha pogut refugiar a la meva estimada Escòcia. Freedom for Scotland! Hello, my name is Susan Duncan. I live in Glasgow. You are listening to Indie Live Radio. Happy International Women's Day to you all. I was born in Iran, so I would like to do the same in Farsi. Ruza Beinul Melaliyazan Mubarak. Choose to challenge gender toys. Buy your girls the science kit, the messy art project, or the robot. Encourage them to be loud, to challenge themselves, to explore and be brave. Choose to challenge male-dominated careers. Bring up your daughters to study engineering, mathematics, or science. 
encourage them to follow their dreams. No career should be out with their imagination. Choose to challenge our limits. Let's help our daughters to be independent. Build up their confidence and push them to go out and get what they want. Choose to challenge male-dominated pastimes. Join a martial arts class, lift heavy weights, or take up CrossFit. Join a rock band, land a double bass, or pick up a tuba. Choose to challenge the glass ceiling, push through barriers, and work towards your full potential. Pull other women up with you and encourage your peers to succeed. Happy International Women's Day to each one of you. Ruzem Beynul Melaliyazan, Behamegi Mubarak. Hi, my name is Dr. Nikot Riaz, and you're listening to Indie Live Radio on International Women's Day. I choose to challenge and disrupt the narrative and speak to power. I'm now going to repeat this in Punjabi. Assalamu alaikum. Namaste Sasriyakal, Mira Nahe, Dr. Nikatriyaz. Tusi Sunreha, Indi Live Radio, on International Women's Day. Majo Keri Hunke Mehana Makabla Kurungi, or Jiri Galbat Hegia, Ke Jo Mas Sachki Sachka Satadongi. Shukriya. Hello, everyone. This is Tina Yu. You're listening to Indi Live Radio on International Women's Day. I'm just going to wish all our listeners. Good health and success in Mandarin and in Cantonese. International Women's Day. My name is Zhuang Kei, and I am so happy to be addressing you at Indie Live Radio for International Women's Day special. I uh, have been in Scotland for four decades and I was attracted by the excellence of your universities and also by your extraordinary intellectual achievements through the centuries. I now have a Scottish husband and three Scottish children. I love the country and admire it tremendously and the longer I live, the longer I live here, the more I admire it. There is, um, I come from Portugal, and uh, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century in Portugal and in Europe was Fernando Pessoa. And this, there is a line from one of his poems that I always think about when I think about Scotland. It's from a book that he wrote called Mensagem. He wrote it in the 30s, when we in Portugal were under political oppression and we had lost the sense of who we were and we needed someone to tell us, to remind us about our extraordinary contribution to world history, to the discoveries and many other achievements, looking at our faults, but also reminding us how much we had contributed, what our, our spirit of endurance, our qualities had led us to do, what the people can do. And the line from this poem is from, um, the poem is called Mar Portuguese, Portuguese Sea. And the line is, Tudo vale a pena, 
se a alma não é pequena. Ai, all things worth it. Gin ye he a soul that's muckle in you. Everything is worth it if your soul is big enough. Now, I've lived here for a long time and I know that Scotland's soul is more than big enough for anything. So, choose to challenge. This is Marlene here, just briefly signing off at the end of these four fantastic programmes in celebration of International Women's Day. I really enjoyed hearing Val just read out the list of all our guests, an amazing bunch of women. One thing that struck me when I was listening to Val read out those names is that without the COVID pandemic, these four programmes probably would not have happened. I'm sure Valerie and I would have done something to celebrate International Women's Day. I'm sure we would have set up a few guests to come into the studio and it's because we've got used to working remotely, producing programmes from home rather than always being in the studio and of course become very familiar with with using online platforms like Zoom. And out of that has come this array of women celebrating International Women's Day. Thank you all so much for being prepared to come along and contribute to the programme. And of course, although it's Val and I's voices who are on the actual programme, we couldn't have done it without the help of Fiona, Steve and Jerry working in the background, helping us with the odd technical glitch and coming up with and coming up with suggestions about how to take the whole project forward. So very big thanks to them as well. And lastly, a big thanks to Val for having that idea in the first place and then the two of us working together to make it happen. And then live talk radio. The daytime show.